So, in case you came in late, my name is Will Groban, and I'm a good friend of Pastor Charlie's, and so I'm very honored to be here again. I was here last year, about a year and a half ago now, and we looked at the first prophecy in the book of Haggai. Now, that prophecy didn't foretell anything about the future. Rather, it was what we call forth-telling, which means it called people back into covenant relationship with God. Today, we're going to look at Haggai's second prophecy, one that not only foretold the future to the people of Haggai's community, but which foretells events still future in our day. So if you have your Bible and you want to open it, look for Haggai chapter 2. If you have to use your table of contents to get there, don't feel bad. You probably haven't spent a whole lot of time there lately, right? Now, while you're turning or flipping your phone, think about how biblical prophets worked. Did a fellow like Haggai come in here and say he had a prophecy for everybody and then go around the room and say, Jim, I know you're a man, but this time next year you'll be with child. (laughs) Pat, if you only had faith enough, you could be doing cartwheels on your roof. I mean, is that how it worked? No. Okay, so that was a softball. You guys were supposed to hit that one out of the park. No, you're so loud that this mic picked you up, right? Was the prophet in control of the gift. So if I was an Old Testament prophet, could I give a prophecy to anyone I wanted whenever I wanted? No. No. Was an Old Testament prophet speaking for God ever wrong? He better not be, right? Because the penalty for that under the Mosaic law was death. No, let me tell you how it worked. God would speak to a fellow and thereby ruin his life. Okay, that's really how it would work. Seriously, I mean, prophecy did not make you popular. Prophets were ridiculed, hunted, beaten, chased out of town, killed, and otherwise mistreated much of the time. God would speak to the prophet and compel him to go share that with specific people. Sometimes it would be a certain word to say. Sometimes it would be a certain thing to do. Sometimes he'd get a, the prophet would get a vision, a little foreshadowing of what was to come. I keep referring to the prophet as masculine, but the word prophetess occurs several times in Scripture to describe women through whom God chose to work. The prophet Haggai was a man, and he gave this prophecy in 520 B.C., so about 2,500 years ago. Now, I'd like to jump right into the text, but I think we better review the cast of characters because probably most of you have not been in the book of Haggai lately, and even fewer of you remember my sermon from a year and a half ago. So let me just tell you, the people of Haggai's community were the first returned exiles who were living in Jerusalem. Zerubbabel was the political overseer of the exiles appointed by the Persian government. But here's the thing, Zerubbabel was the grandson of the Judean king who had surrendered to the Babylonians 66 years earlier. Zerubbabel was the rightful king of Israel at this time, and he would become an ancestor to Jesus. Joshua was a legitimate high priest descended from the line of Aaron, son of the high priest who had been exiled by the Babylonians. Haggai, he was just a normal person like you and me, who found himself being used by God in ways that he could have never imagined. God spoke through Haggai and brought about great change in the people of his community and great improvement in their relationship with God. Because of Haggai's first prophecy, the people got to work on rebuilding the temple, and they would complete it four years later. They also repented to become more devoted to God, more dependent on God, more obedient 
as they sought to live like God's chosen holy people. In our passage today, God's going to give them a glimpse of the future, a reason to hope that God would fully restore his blessing to Israel, making them his covenant people just as he had promised before. Let me pray quickly, and then we'll jump right into our text. Father, thank you for the revelation that you're going to give us in the second chapter of the book of Haggai. Please bless the speaker to be accurate and clear. Help us to understand your revelation and to accept it. And even though it's a prophecy given 2,500 years ago for a specific situation and a specific culture, help us to see what you would have us make of it, how it can serve to change our thinking and our way of life today. We love you, Lord. We pray that what we do here would glorify you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. The book of Haggai, chapter 2. We'll begin with verses 1 through 3. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, and let me just say this is in the second year of Persian King Darius's reign, which we learned in the previous verse a year and a half ago, the word of the Lord, that is the word of Yahweh, came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. God said, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? This message was delivered on the last day of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Does anybody know what time of year that was? Yeah, it's right about now. It's coming up in a couple of weeks. We should ask Pastor Charlie to postpone his little vacation. (laughs) The people would have been gathered at the Temple Mount for this week-long festival. And they would have known from Scripture that this was the same time of year as when Solomon originally dedicated the temple 440 years earlier. Now, one month after starting construction again, they apparently were getting discouraged, seeing their efforts as nothing compared to Solomon's temple. Perhaps because the rebuilt temple wouldn't be as glorious, perhaps because the construction site at this point was a mess. Meanwhile, this feast was a remembrance of God's provision and protection during the Exodus, and it was a celebration of the present blessing of the harvest. But as we learned in Haggai chapter 1, or as you will if you go home and read it today, they were suffering a bad harvest because of God's discipline for their sin. So their rejoicing was probably a little more subdued than usual. Ezra tells us that some of the elderly among the people had experienced the fall of Jerusalem and the exile into Babylon 66 years earlier. So those people could remember Solomon's temple. But how nice was it when they experienced it before the exile? Solomon's temple itself was not huge. In fact, Ezra tells us the Persian king had decreed that the new temple would be twice as tall at 90 feet and three times as wide at 90 feet. Of course, what some distant bureaucrat decides is feasible. It doesn't always make sense to the people on site, right? Solomon's temple originally was very ornate inside, but before the exile, it was not nearly as nice as it had been because it had been plundered several times. It was first plundered by the Egyptians about 926 B.C., 
then by Judah's own kings to pay protection money, first to the Arameans in 800 BC, then the Assyrians about 715 BC, then the Assyrians again in 701 BC. Then it was plundered by the Babylonians in 597 BC before it was destroyed altogether by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Now all of that plundering would have taken place before any of these people were old enough to really remark on what they were seeing and remember it. So it's hard to see how they could be lamenting the lack of ornamentation. They might have been lamenting the loss of certain sacred objects like the Ark of the Covenant. Ezra tells us that the returning exiles brought back at least some of the gold and silver vessels that the Babylonians had taken with them, but there might have been some sacred objects that were still missing. Another thing weighing on them might have been that the vision for the temple in the Messianic age as prophesied by Isaiah and Ezekiel was that it would surpass the glory and beauty of the first temple. Because these people knew they weren't aspiring to build anything so grand. And so they might have been disheartened because they wanted to believe they were the faithful remnant waiting for the Messiah to come. Also, the Temple Mount before the exile had been a complex. Not just the temple itself, but walls and other buildings, towers, and ornate carvings in the wood and the rock. This picture is a rendering from the north of when Nehemiah had led the people to restore the walls and the towers. But that happened 70 to 80 years after the time of Haggai. Without those walls and towers, the rebuilt temple would just be a simple building on top of a high platform. Now one other consideration is the returned exiles probably remembered the temple as being magnificent, extraordinary, because it had been built up in their minds over the decades of exile and return. Now they were struggling to get started rebuilding, and so they were frustrated. More and more as I study this passage, I think the biggest problem was just that at this point, a month in, the Temple Mount was still pretty barren. God apparently sensed the discouragement among the people, and so he spoke. Let's see what else he said. Verse 4, Haggai continued, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. We have here a beautiful, logical chiasm. So let's take a look. It begins with a command, right? Be strong and get to work. And then there's reassurance. I am with you, and I am the Lord Almighty. Then there's theology. I made you a covenant promise in the Exodus. Back to reassurance. The Holy Spirit is still with you. And back to command. Do not fear. It all centers on the theology. So let's start there. When the Hebrew people were rescued from Egypt in the Exodus, God promised that he would deliver them and provide for them and that his spirit would be in their midst. So they were not to fear the Egyptians or hunger or anything else. Nine centuries later, Haggai's, see, I slipped into the English, Haggai's community was celebrating a feast that remembered God's provision during the Exodus. And the weak harvest they were experiencing would have reminded them all the more how dependent they were on God's covenant blessings. God's reassurances reiterate his promise, and that's how they encourage the people might be intimidated about the task of rebuilding the temple. They might be fearful of dealing with the weak harvest. 
But just as God had provided, protected, and empowered them during the Exodus, so he would again. Their God is Yahweh Tzvaot, it says in the text. The English Bibles render that Lord of hosts or Lord Almighty. Yahweh Tzvaot emphasizes Yahweh as the all-powerful God. And this all-powerful God is with them. His spirit remains among them. He's aware of their struggles. He's aware of their fears. He's even aware of their sins, but he is right there with them. Would you find that encouraging? Scholar Richard Taylor wrote, the prophet indicates that the antidote to discouragement lies in reflection on the Lord's continuous presence as evidenced by his prior salvific deeds in behalf of his people. In other words, when you're discouraged, remember who God is. Remember what he's done for you in the past. Remember what he promises to do now. Maybe this is a lesson that we can take for ourselves. Now let's consider the commands. In the first prophecy, we saw the people in Haggai's community had learned to fear God. Now, God tells them not to fear the world, not to fear failure. He was faithful and he was with them. The theological truth provides reassurance which makes obeying the commands possible. That's how God communicates in Scripture. The language of the commands would have reminded the people of the Exodus. For example, God said to Joshua, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It also would have reminded the people of David's words to Solomon about the construction of the first temple. First Chronicles 28.20, David also said to Solomon his son, Be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. As scholar Pieter Verhoff wrote, the people who bow in awe before the Lord must not be afraid to serve the Lord. God had told the leaders and the people they should have courage. They should be strong, take heart. For he was with them, and having taken heart, they should get back to work, right? They were to bravely press on with the work while trusting God to deliver the success. The people were to do what God said, trusting God with the results and with everything else. And that, my friends, is a biblical key to successful life. You might want to write that one down, okay? God gave Adam and Eve command and promise. They were to do what God said, trust God with the results and everything else. God gave Abraham command and promise. He was to do what God said, trusting God with the results and with everything else. Through the Mosaic Covenant, God gave Israel command and promise. They were to do what God said, trusting God with the results and with everything else. Nothing had changed for these former exiles still living under the Mosaic Covenant. And honestly, in this sense... Nothing has changed for us living under the new covenant either. We should do what God says, trusting him for the results and with everything else. As God's people, this post-exilic community was not to allow their concerns to be more influential than God's plans. And we too should not allow our concerns, our fears, our anxieties to be more influential than God's plans. God is all-powerful 
all capable. If he wants us to do something, then we should do it, trusting him to empower us and deliver us. And we should keep in mind that success in God's eyes is not about the accomplishment. It's about faithfulness and obedience. It was up to God whether the rebuilt temple would be magnificent or not. The people's responsibility was to act in faith and obedience by building it. So when you read in the Bible that God wants you to reproduce his image among the lost people he has placed in your life, or when you sense the conviction that God wants you to repair a broken relationship, or when you know God wants you to press on ministering to others in his name despite your partial disability and your chronic pain, then remember who God is. Remember what he has done for you and through you in the past. Remember what he promises right now, that he is with you, that he's empowering you. Remember that your job is not to worry about failure or human impossibilities. It is to do what God says. Trust him with the result and with everything else. Let's finish our text. This is where we see a little foretelling of the future. Verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. God identifies himself five times here as Yahweh Tzvaot, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty. God is emphatically reminding the people that he is all-powerful. He is in control. He can make happen whatever he wants to happen. What God says here recalls God's intervention for his people in the past. For example, describing the Exodus, Psalm 68, 8 says, The earth shook, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. And Exodus 15, 14 says, The nations will hear and tremble. Now God says once more, letting the people of Haggai's community understand that in the future there would be another Exodus-like deliverance, just as previous prophets had attested. God would shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the land, nothing would be unaffected. And this would be a time of judgment because God would shake the nations too. And then Israel would be free and the Gentiles would bring their treasure to God. When God delivered the people out of Egypt, they carried with them Egyptian gold, silver, and gems, which they used to decorate the tabernacle. Solomon's first temple was largely furnished with tribute from the nations which his father David had taken. In the future deliverance, God will again adorn his temple with tribute treasures taken from the nations. Isaiah prophesied that the nations who did not serve Israel under the Messiah King would perish, and those that survived would bring their treasures to Jerusalem. God says the gold and silver are his, and he will make the nations acknowledge this. Now, if you're reading the New King James or the NIV, 
You might get a little different feel from verse 7 because some translators read the Hebrew to mean that the nations will come to the temple to see the Messiah. I don't think that's what it's saying, judging from the whole context about the treasures. But either way, we see this as a vision of the end times, right? The mention of peace and surviving nations paying tribute to Israel tell us that we are talking about the temple and the millennial kingdom when Christ returns. During the exile, the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel spoke of the coming Messiah who would be king and savior, and they provided assurances of peace during his reign. After Haggai, the prophets Zechariah and Malachi would say the same. As scholar Eugene Merrill said, with his feet firmly planted in the world of the 6th century BC, Haggai lifted up his eyes and those of his people to the eschaton, the end times as well to the day when the Lord would fill his house with his glory and peace. Now, what I want to know is why hasn't this happened yet? I mean, how long is in a little while, right? God didn't fully fulfill these promises in the post-exilic period, nor in the New Testament period, nor in 2,000 years since then. So what's going on? It is possible that we're translating in a little while incorrectly. This phrase is unique in the Hebrew Bible, so we're not really sure how to handle it. In fact, the Greek Septuagint version doesn't have a time element as far as I, I can see. Another theory is that the immediacy was conditional, that the post-exilic community didn't meet the conditions, and then, of course, in Jesus' day, the religious leaders rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and so God has pushed fulfillment into the distant future. Or perhaps God's sense of timing simply is not the same as ours, right? Many of Jesus's and Paul's messages about the end times seem to have that, they have an implication of immediacy, just like this verse. And yet we still wait. In any case, when God does bring all this about, the rebuilt temple will have even more glory than before, and there will be peace. In the prophets, God repeatedly promised peace to Jerusalem and to the temple on Mount Zion. This peace results from renewal of the covenant relationship between God and Israel as his representative people during Christ's millennial kingdom. The Hebrew word for peace, shalom, means a lot more than our English word, right? It does mean military peace. It does mean peace between us and God. But it also means wholeness and wellness and health. Your, of your entire being, success and safety, and in this case, all the promised messianic blessings of the end times. It's a big word. It's a big promise. What God was telling them was they needed to build the temple, and God would take care of everything else. Knowing that God promised the end result would be glory for the temple and peace for the Jews would motivate the people of Haggai's community to get back to work and complete the temple. The New Testament quotes a guy in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. It says, Now he, that is God, has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, beginning yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire.
Hebrews, again, makes it clear that Haggai was talking about the time of judgment of the nations that will occur with the second coming of Christ when he will set up his unshakable kingdom. The elaboration in Hebrew should be incredibly motivating for people like us. Just like the people of Haggai's day, we can see that our God is a consuming fire, that he is Yahweh Tzva'ot, the Lord Almighty. He is the God who will force the nations to submit to the reign of Christ as the ultimate Davidic king. Now, from New Testament revelation, we know that when Christ is king, not only will his kingdom be unshakable, but we'll be a part of it. This is part of our inheritance, our deliverance or salvation. Under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit indwells those of us who believe. So we know that Christ's spirit is always with us, the Holy Spirit. And we are united with Christ, so we know our deliverance is assured. And all that should motivate us to worship God with reverence and with awe. For God has amazing power and amazing grace. Haggai's people did rebuild the temple over the next four years, and God allowed them to use the gold and the silver that the Babylonians had taken from them long ago. Hundreds of years later, Herod would expand the Temple Mount significantly, and he would make the whole complex far more ornate. Many, many Gentiles came to visit the temple during that time period, and of course, Jesus taught there as well. I was showing my little three-year-old the other day, her mommy and me sitting on the southern steps of the Temple Mount, place where you know Jesus walked. Kind of cool. Just fun to be there. In AD 70, however, because of Jewish rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, God allowed the Romans to carry out a judgment of destroying the temple, raising it down to the bedrock. And it stands like that today. In fact, there's two Islamic mosques on the Temple Mount today. Now that might seem to negate Haggai's prophecy, but scholar Robert Chisholm notes that back in verse 3 of the text we read, God referred to both Solomon's temple and the new construction as this temple. In other words, they were just phases of the same temple in God's eyes. And so too, a future temple could be regarded as a later phase of this historic temple, according to Chisholm. The prophecy will still come true. After the thousand-year reign of Christ in the millennial kingdom, we'll have a final permanent kingdom with no sin, no crime, no war. And then there will be no need for a temple either. In Revelation 21:22, it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. Before that time, Haggai's prophecy will come true. Now, i got to tell you, this is a confession. Before I went to seminary, well, before I went to seminary, I'd never been in a Bible teaching church. <laughs> so that's my excuse. But before I went to seminary, I didn't really see much value in end times prophecy in the Bible because it didn't speak directly to what you should do, how you should live. And so I didn't see any value in it. But now I know I'm wrong, right? From this prophecy, we are reminded that God can defeat the greatest powers or nations on the earth. He can shape human history, alter nature, even supernaturally divide a sea at just the right time to accomplish what he wants. And if I think about it, I find it comforting to know that God promises to do this in the end. Because I do get discouraged reading the news. We were talking about that earlier, but you see all these horrific world events, pervasive corruption in our government here in this country. Illegal activity by a lot of our American companies. Bias in the media, the decline of morality or even sensibility 
in various parts of our culture. I'm encouraged to know that someday it will end, that someday Christ will return and demand an accounting, that he will set all things right again and rule over the earth as king. Such prophecy shows us that Jesus is even more magnificent than we often teach in our churches. He is the Savior, but he's more. He is the Messiah Christ promised to Israel and even as far back as to Adam and Eve, but he is more. He is the head of the church he founded. He is the high priest sitting at God the Father's right hand advocating for us. He is God's chosen judge, but he is more. And though there is nothing greater than the Son of God, which he is, we can say he is more in the sense that there is more to know about him. You see, Jesus is the king, and not just king of our hearts or king of Christians or king of the earth someday. He is king right now of the Jews. He is descended from David. He is the prophesied Davidic king, the son of man. And that, theologically, makes him God the Father's ultimate representative on the whole earth. When he rode that donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he was deliberately fulfilling a prophecy about that. And thereby he was declaring that he was this king. And the people understood that, calling out, Hosanna, please save us trusting that he was the one who had been prophesied to come from Yahweh to save them. If you ignore end times prophecy, or grossly misinterpret it, as some of us do, then you miss out on part of who Jesus is. You miss out on part of what is so awesome about Scripture, how it all ties together in Christ. And you miss out on the faith that every one of God's promises is coming true. Honestly, I am not Jewish by heritage, but it comforts me to know that Jesus will return as king of Israel, that he will rule the world from David's throne in Jerusalem, because that means God keeps his promises, and I am clinging to the promises that he has made to us. Like Haggai's people, we are reassured to know that God's spirit testifies to us. As I said, in this new covenant time period, everyone who comes to saving faith in Jesus has the Holy Spirit indwelling them. So we don't ever have to worry about God's presence with us or God's empowerment of us or his security of our souls if doing his work costs us our lives. So if we know all this about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit and their plans for history, it seems to me that should shape who we are and how we respond to God and his revelation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Again, even though it was 2,500 years ago and spoken into a specific context, it can still speak to us today, and that's the power of your word. We can draw reassurance from who you are and how you've come through for your people in the past and what you promise for us today. And we can draw reassurance from knowing that, that Jesus is coming back and that he will be king. He's already anointed king, but he will be acting as king on David's throne, ruling the world, and we'll be a part of that. We do look forward to that day. We look forward to that day hoping that before that time you'll extend grace to all of our loved ones who don't know you. And Lord, 
even though you are the one who brings success in that endeavor too, help us to be the ones who go out and do the work. You have commanded all of us to make disciples. And that includes sharing the good news of the gospel with people who don't know you. It includes teaching others who are already believers, mentoring, encouraging, building people up, caring for them, serving them. We're a small church here, Lord. There's not a lot of, there's not an organized children's ministry or probably not an organized care ministry, but Lord, we've got a room full of faithful people guide us into how you would have us live out our lives as your image bearers, as your representatives, as the people who can be distinct in this day, this time period. Help us to do what you say to do in Scripture and by the Spirit. And help us just not to worry about it, but to trust you with the results and to trust you with everything else. We love you. That's why we're here. We pray that our worship was acceptable to you today, that we bring you glory in the way that we praise you and in the way that we live as we go out the door. We thank you for your love, your grace, your empowerment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't remember what time we started, but... I was startled when I looked at the clock. I was like, I must have been talking really fast. <laughs> All right. So are you going to do the communion? I guess so. Yeah, and if you want to do Charlie's words, you can that. No, I'm afraid of Charlie's words, actually. <laughs> There's a lot of Hebrew in there. There are some in there, but I thought you had the Hebrew down more than he did. So. Oh, no. You know, that's the Reading sad it, thing. But not speaking it. Okay. No, I, I mean, I, used to, I like speaking. I like, in fact, there's a... a messianic Jewish guy who comes to the church where I've been preaching and he told me the other day I'm the only Christian preacher that he's ever seen who talks about the different types of verbs and how they're, it changes the meaning in the text and I was like wow that's awesome I mean the fact is I graduated in 2011 and I haven't done that much with Hebrew or Greek not enough since then and you know how it is. I mean, stuff just doesn't stay in there, right? <laughs> so, and I'm not, I don't have a very good memory. So even in English, like, you know, it's taken me 50 years to learn the vocab. My, my daughter's already passing me in vocabulary because she's like a sponge, you know. She watches Martha Speaks, this cartoon about a talking dog, and learns five words every day. You know, she's, she's, she comes up with things. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so anyway, this is what I want to, I read what Charlie has, and I'm not going to, deviate from that in theme but i just wanted to say you know the time of judgment is coming right and god is going to shake the heavens and the earth the land and the sea and so it's very reassuring that we know the holy spirit remains in our midst and that god does keep his promises and if you think about god's promises of course the most important one started way back there in the garden of eden right god promised that the seed of the woman would come this is developed throughout the Bible, this promise, it becomes the promise about the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. The seed that would come and bring victory and offer us grace. And we know that Jesus did come, that he is victorious, that he does offer us grace, and he will come again to fully deliver us out of the trials that we have now and to restore and to rule in the end. The thing is, there are no shades of gray 
gray with God. You know, we like to think in shades of gray, but God is black and white. If you look at the ethics in the Bible, there's no shade of gray. And it's true for salvation too. You're either in or you're out, right? The problem is to be out is to receive the judgment we deserve, the condemnation for sin that we have coming. To be in is to receive mercy to avoid that judgment and to receive grace in the form of eternal life with God. We can't earn our way in. None of us deserves to be in. But we can be in, in God's family as adopted children, right? If we put our faith in the promise. And I think that promise comes down to who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us. I mean, the whole Bible is the gospel, right? Our friends in the PNG, that's what they're doing. They're starting at Genesis 1, and they're just going to teach it through to that tribe. But if you boil it all down to what we know from the New Testament, we have to believe that Jesus is the divine Son of God. And he came here, born as one of us. So he's fully human as well as fully God. He is the promised Messiah, human deliverer. He's also the Son of God, the divine deliverer. And we believe that in his death on the cross and in his resurrection, that he paid the penalty for our sins. He makes it possible for us to appease the wrath of God over our waywardness, over our guilt as a species for not being his image bearers and going wayward, over the corruption that we're all born with because of Adam and Eve's sin. Because of that, we can have forgiveness, adoption into God's family. We can have eternal life, right? All of that, deliverance, because of a promise, because we put our faith in it. As Hebrew says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So I want to give you a few minutes for prayer. You can pray and express your faith, your gratitude, maybe your reverence and your awe to God this morning doesn't matter whether you're praying to the Father or the Son or the Spirit or all three. I kind of think of God. When I say God, I think of all three. When I want to pray just to the Father, I pray to the Father. You can do however you want. I don't know why. I'm rambling now. <laughs> the caffeine's worn off. and That was decaf coffee, by the way, just so you know. So we're going to have a time of prayer, and then I will read to you a passage about what we're doing here and invite you to come up and partake as you usually do.
since I'm a guest preacher, I can get away with it. I'm going to give you a different verse today. It's Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So I invite you to come up at your own pace. We have the bread and the fruit of the vine. You can help yourself. I have to break it. Yes, you We could do it. Sorry. Every church does it differently. Do I have to break it into exactly? No. So much for the solemnity of the moment. It's okay. You're a visitor. Visiting family. Last time I was here, Jim handled the prophecy update and the communion, so I didn't apparently pay attention, and that's <laughs> threw me so far off. I forgot to tell you that you know you're coming up to share in the symbolization of your death with Jesus on the cross to sin, and your resurrection to new life with Him. Yeah, I'm a good pastor, <laughs> but I've got something else to tell you. Karasumin kairene, that's Greek. 
and, and scholarly pronunciation, not real great pronunciation. It means grace and peace to you. We find that in 17 of the New Testament letters in some form or other. It was very important to the apostles because it was true and because it was miraculous. We have grace and peace from God. That's what we're doing here. We're remembering that. And you know, even though we don't believe that something magical happens when you take the bread and the juice, we do believe in a sense that something does. Because if you are remembering what Christ has done for you, that can be a sanctifying moment for you, communing. I'm one of those people that loves music. So today I told Jim, he picked great songs. I'd never heard them before, and I really liked them. We have that hymnal, my church, the church I'm at in Bradenton right now, so I'm going to see if they'll play it for me next week. I haven't given them any input on music yet. See how they take that. But I'm one of those people that when I hear music, worship music, I feel closer to God. So that can be a sanctifying moment, because in that moment, and this is the thing with contemporary music too, I know a lot of you probably don't like it, but I didn't say all of you, I said some of you. Some of you older people like Jim might not like it, but the thing is, if you get lost in that moment, even if it's just repeating this phrase, and you get lost intellectually and emotionally and spiritually, and you're saying something like, you know, God change me, or I love you, God, or something like that, in that moment, you truly believe that, and you're identifying with that. It may be lost when you walk out the door, right? But in that moment, you were so connected to God that you gave him a chance to work on you. We want that to happen with the music, with the sermon, with the prayer, with the communion, and that's how communion can work. If you truly remember, and you truly give yourself over to God, he can use that moment to work in your heart. I'm really glad I was able to come today. I'm sorry, I mean, I live in St. Pete, and when I moved there, I thought, oh, I'm gonna see all my friends so often, this is gonna be great, because I'd been you know, all the way in Pennsylvania. St. Pete's really close. I haven't seen Charlie since I've been back in St. Pete almost three years ago, <laughs> you know, because whenever I'm here, he's not, obviously, and I just have a three-year-old who does not like sitting in the car for an hour, so we just don't get down here, and we're all very busy. But it's really been nice for me to be here. I hope you enjoyed the service, I'm glad those of you online as well as in the room were here. Hope you'll be back next week. Pastor Charlie will be back, God willing. And we'll see what he has for us. Now I'm supposed to push the powerful break button. <laughs> the camera pans back. We wave, right? Thank you for joining us. When it stops, we wave goodbye. After that,